Well, if you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we continue in our series of putting on the new you. This series began all the way back in Ephesians chapter 4, and we've looked at individual sections throughout these last several weeks. And we began the week before Easter and looking at what walking in subjection would look like for our lives. And so we began by looking at what it means for the wife to subject herself to her husband. As we read those words, as difficult and as challenging as they are, as much as they fly in the face of our current culture, we must remember that God's word is holy and inerrant, inerrant, it is infallible, it is eternal. And in the context of our passage today, we really find that these roles that have been laid out for husbands and wives are rooted in the order of creation found back in Genesis chapter 2. Adam underwent a deep sleep. And God took from him a rib and fashioned out of that rib a woman. He gave that woman to the man. And the man said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. We see that quoted in the tail end of our passage today. And so we find these roles in relationships, most particularly marriage, defined by God and instructive for us today. What we all know is that life is made far more meaningful by the, by the relationships that we enjoy. No relationship is like the marriage relationship. You know, you love your children and you love your parents, but the love you have for your spouse is unlike any other love. There is something unique about the two becoming one and how this relationship is to be lived out. But in our culture, we find that marriage has failed to meet the needs of many, many people. The expectations and the desires have not been met. And we find in our culture today that the divorce rate still hovers around 50%. And tragically, those percentages really aren't that different within the evangelical Christian community as they are amongst those who profess no faith in God. So we bring into our marriage relationships certain ideas, certain expectations, unmet needs and desires. We have fantasies about what our marriage is going to be look like. For many women, the husband is going to be my knight in shining armor. For many men, the wife is going to be that one who cooks for me and cleans for me, the one with whom I'm going to have an intimate physical relationship with. And so we construct these fantasies that define what our marriage is to be look like. And when those expectations aren't being met, rather than challenge our own fantasies, rather than questioning those expectations, we instead reconsider the mate that we have. When we begin to compare our mate to this fantasy, to these expectations that we have, we will invariably find that they aren't quite meeting up to the expectation. The very first marriage lived in perfect harmony, free from the presence of sin, free from the influence of sin, from selfishness and self-will. They were consumed with loving each other. But after the fall, everything about marriage changed. A curse was issued. To the woman, God said that your desire will be for your husband, meaning that your desire will be to control your husband. And God goes on to say, and he will rule over you, which means he will dominate you. He will become a dictator over you. He will rule you as an authoritarian, which was never what God intended for the marriage relationship to be. 
The roles and relationships that God has designed for marriage have been grossly distorted by the impact of sin, by the curse of the fall. Today, women seek unrestrained equality with no defined roles, no limitations, no restrictions of any kind. Historically, men have been guilty of a greater distortion of these rules. In fact, in Paul's day, the culture with which, in which this, these words were written, the common prayer of the Jew was, I thank God that I was not created a woman. Can you imagine such a, an idea, such an attitude? But it was the prevailing attitude of the day. That sentiment was not created by the Jewish people, but it was rather inherited from Plato, who lived some three to four hundred years earlier. And there was a common phrase within the Greek world, I thank God that I am not a barbarian. I thank God that I am not an animal. I thank God that I am not a woman. So women have had to bear an incredible amount of mistreatment over the years. They have been trampled on for most of our existence. They have had no rights. They have had very little representation. They have been taken advantage of for centuries In fact, in our own country, women were not given the right to vote until 1920. So for many parts of the world, this is the kind of environment that women have been asked to live in, that husband and wife relationships take part in. And for the most part, women have been powerless to do anything about this. So when we read in chapter 5, verse 21, that we are to be subject to one another... The body of believers, the body of Christ, we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We see the specifics of how that is to be lived out within our relationships. So wives are to subject themselves to the God-given role of the husband as the head of the wife, as the leader of the home. And if we back up a little bit and read from 518, where we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we recognize that a woman could never fully subject herself to her husband apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit. In our passage today, we see the detail of how the man is to subject himself to his wife, which also can only be fulfilled in the power of the Holy Spirit. Join with me as we look at verses 25 through 33 from Ephesians chapter 5. And here's what the Word of God says to us today. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, you will notice in this passage that there is no instruction about how the husband is to rule or dominate or be an authoritarian or be a dictator in this marriage relationship. 
which is what the culture would have expected and which they were already doing. But instead, Paul outlines for us, number one, the mandate to love. Verse 25 begins, Husbands, love your wives. You know, that is not a suggestion. It is not a good idea. It is not a helpful hint in how to have a happy marriage. It is a directive. It is a command from the scripture that husbands are to love their wives. Imagine how surprised the readers of this letter would be in Paul's day. What do you mean I'm supposed to love my wife? Aren't I supposed to rule over my wife? Aren't I supposed to be the, wears, the one that wears the pants in the family? Isn't it my way or the highway? Because that's basically how it took place. These words are shocking because they are a direct contrast to the way most husband-wife relationships existed in that day. But remember, these aren't just Paul's words to the Ephesian church and to the greater churches in Asia Minor, but these are the very words of God. Wives are to subject themselves to their husband's leadership, and men are to subject themselves to their wives by leading in love. It shouldn't be a surprise, but the word love that is used here is the word agape. It is the highest form of love. He didn't use the word eros, which is a sexual passion. He didn't use the word phileo, which suggests a family affection. But he used the word agape, which is the highest kind of love. It is the love with which God loves you and I today. God loves us in a divine love that is consistent with, the, with his nature and with his character. In this culture, and in most cultures up to this point, wives had significant obligations to their husbands, but husbands had no obligations to their wives. And so here we see inserted in the Word of God to direct how Christian relationships are to exist for all of eternity... The husband is to love his wife. Women were treated like servants. And that sentiment lives on in many of our cultures even today. God's pattern for marriage, God's roles and distinctives in marriage, are unlike any other pattern that the world has ever seen. Husbands are to love in a manner that reflects the same qualities as God's love. It seeks the highest good and the person being loved. It is doing what is best for the person that is being loved. Now, here's what we need to hear. Here's what we need to really understand, guys, is that love is not passivity. Love is not relinquishing the God-given role that you have to lead in love. Love is not rolling over in order to keep the peace. Love is loving with the best interest and the object of that love. It is a commitment to serve and to lead for the greatest good. You know, when I think about love, as I'm sure you do, my mind always goes back to 1 Corinthians 13. Paul's talking about the context of spiritual gifts, but this really defines for us the way we are to love one another. So 1 Corinthians 13 says this, and guys, I want you to think about this in terms of how you are to love your wife. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. 
It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. This is the kind of love with which God loves us. This is the kind of love that we are to have within the body of Christ. And most especially, this is the kind of love that is to exist within the husband-wife relationship. You know, the most difficult and challenging book I've read in recent past is a book very simply titled, How to Love Your Wife as Christ Loves the Church. You talk about a level of conviction. You talk about a level of failure in applying agape love to the most significant relationship we will ever have. If you like that kind of thing, I suggest you go read the book. It will revolutionize the way you view your obligation to your mate. As we think about what is expressed in these verses, it becomes overwhelmingly obvious to me that we can only love that way when we are filled with, dominated by, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Guys, we do not possess the capacity to love the way God loves. Ladies, you don't have the capacity to love the way God's love. It is imperative that our lives are lived in obedience to the Lord, a constant pattern of confession and repentance and forgiveness. So we see the mandate to love. We are to love our wives. Now we see the model of love. The model of love is found in verse 25. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's the model. That's the standard. That is the comparison to how we are to love. Not what my dad did, not what my neighbors do, not what the pastor does, but Christ is to be our example in how we are to love our wives. The model here is the way Christ loved the church. Let me ask you this as a point of confrontation. Has Jesus given up his authority over the church? Oh, absolutely not. He is the Lord of all. Has Jesus relinquished his role as the head of the church? Absolutely not. We are his body. He is the head. Has he become disinterested or disengaged in the church or from the church? Absolutely not. We are his bride. The marching orders for the Great Commission have been given to the church. And it is God's desire that as we are filled with him and as we live in obedience to him, we would carry out what he has called the church to do. So this is the model for our love to our wives, not passivity, not relinquishing the role, not being quiet just to keep the peace. It is an engaged, it is an active relationship that we are to have. Now, in these verses that follow, we see exactly how Jesus loved the church. And this is what is explained in this passage. It is what he has done in his first advent, in his death and resurrection, conquering sin and death, his ascension, going back to his rightful place in heaven. And as we think of this, don't think of the church as simply an organization. Think of the church as his body. Think of it as his bride. That is the picture that we see here. It is the relationship of Christ to his church 
and the husband to his wife. So there are four examples of this expression of love in these verses that follow. Number one is this is a sacrificial love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love. I've been around for a few years, and I can tell you the one thing that I don't necessarily look forward to and seek out opportunities for, and that is sacrifice. Why? Because sacrifice costs me something. But you see, that's what it means to subject. To subject yourself means that you relinquish your own rights for the benefit of the other person. Not a passivity. Not in denying your role, not in trying to keep the peace, but in being who and doing what God has called us to do. You know, when Jesus came to this world, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that he would be mocked. He knew that he would be mistreated. He knew that he would be falsely accused. He knew that he would be ridiculed. He knew that he would be beaten and scourged, that he would be nailed to the cross. He knew that he would die, and guess what? He came anyway. He willingly sacrificed. He knew what his love demanded from him. And he came for the greater good. He came to be obedient to the call of God, to the plan of redemption. We see this expressed in Philippians chapter 2 in describing Jesus and his coming to earth. So, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His sacrifice was grace. We didn't deserve it. We could do nothing to earn it. And God came anyway. Sacrifice is never an easy thing to do, but that is the example that we have and how we are to love our wives. It is with a sacrificial love. His love is expressed through this sacrifice. He gave up everything to demonstrate his love. He gave up his place in heaven He gave up his rightful position. He came in the form of a man and he ended up giving up his very life. He gave no thought to his needs, to his desires. He set them all aside simply to obey God's call on his life. So here it is, men. It is God's plan that we love our wives as Christ loves us. And that is sacrificially. In doing that, hear me very carefully, in doing that, you don't give up your masculinity. You actually fulfill it because you become a man of God. The world loves those that it considers worthy of love. The world's love is object Oriented. The world's love, the world loves because of attractiveness, of personality, of wit, of prestige, of fame. There's any number of superficial reasons why the world loves and why we may be drawn to individuals because of those things 
The reality is those things are not the bond that makes a marriage last. What makes a marriage last is doing what God has called us to do. And for guys, the first part of what we see here is that we love with a sacrificial love. In the world, as soon as one of those attractive attributes disappear, guess what happens? The world falls out of love. And it seeks an object that is more worthy and more deserving of that love. Now, God doesn't love us that way. Are we worthy of God's love? Are we deserving of God's love? Have we not forsaken Him? Have we not deliberately sinned against Him over and over and over and over? Yet God loves us with an everlasting love, and He showed us that with a sacrificial love of Christ. God loves because it is his nature to love. So we aren't to love our wives because of what she is or because of what she is not. We are to love because God says, love your wife. So how do we express this love of sacrifice? A couple of very practical ways. Give up what you prefer, what you desire, and what you think you need in order to meet her needs. You know, sometimes that means giving your wife the remote. Sometimes it means, why don't you take the night off and I'll take care of dinner and I'll clean up everything and I'll start the laundry and I'll fold it and I'll put it all away. Now, don't do it all at once because your wife might have a heart attack. So be careful in how you do it. Pace yourself, but demonstrate a sacrificial love that is expressed in setting aside your preferences, and your own desires. When you die to your self-will, when you die to your self-rule, and you begin to leave, live to please your mate, to meet her needs and her desires, you don't lose your individuality. You actually fulfill it because the two have become one flesh. So wives, in the same way, when you subject yourself to your husband, you don't give up your individuality. You fulfill God's role by encouraging the oneness that takes place in a marriage relationship. Sounds scary, doesn't it? Well, that's why it's imperative that we be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can execute our subjection to one another in a way that is pleasing to God. Number two. This kind of love that we see is a purifying love. Verses 26 and 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, we need to understand this. This is really the most complicated part of our passage of Scripture. We see these words... Sanctify and cleanse and glory and holiness and blamelessness. And so what this really does is it explains the goal or the purpose of Christ's love for the church. These verses describe what Jesus did when he died on the cross, when he conquered victory over sin and death, paid the penalty for our sin, When we come to Him by faith, He cleanses us and He gives us His holiness and His righteousness. And because those things of Christ have been impugned or placed over us, 
we are now acceptable to him. We are presentable to him. We are spotless and we are blameless. He doesn't simply condemn what is wrong with us. He loves us and seeks to cleanse us from those things that are sinful and wrong. Christ is never content with our sin. Any moral or spiritual impurity in his church, he always wants to cleanse. And this is exactly what has taken place in the life of the church. His bride, his body, is this sanctification, this cleansing, this washing, this holiness, this righteousness. Now here's the key. Husbands are not the source of their wives' sanctification or their glory or their purity or their blamelessness. That is not what this passage of Scripture is saying. Christ is the source of all of that. But the husband's sacrificial love is something that God uses as an instrument to help bring about these things in the life of his wife. That's a mutual thing, by the way. You know, it's always interested me how God has wired women to be more spiritually entombed than our men, yet he has given men the responsibility to lead spiritually within the relationship and within the home. So a woman's faith, her obedience, is to stimulate the husband into the role that he is to fulfill. And as he does that in love, mutually it encourages the process of sanctification within his wife's life. So the purifying love of a husband seeks to purify her from any sort of defilement, seeks to protect her from the world's contamination, and to protect her holiness, her virtue, and her purity in every single way. He will never induce her to do wrong or expose her to that which is less than good and should never encourage her to disobey God's word. That is the role that a husband plays in this purifying kind of love. So, guys, our love will help lead our wives to want the right thing and to do the right thing. It is a purifying love that God uses as an instrument in our continual process of practical sanctification. Number three, not only is it a purifying love, it is a caring love. Look what it says here in 28 and 29. So as Christ has sacrificially loved the church and purified it, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. You know, guys, regardless of what we might say, even though we may not be physical specimens that communicate physical fitness and eating well and discipline, etc., etc. We actually do love ourselves. We love ourselves because we seek to please ourselves in almost every single way. We don't do anything to intentionally harm ourselves. You know, I like to do projects in the house. I like to fix things. But never do I put my thumb down and say, you know, I think I'm going to whack myself real good with a hammer. I think I deserve it. Kabam. I never do that. Why? Because I don't want to intentionally harm myself. Why? Because I really do love myself. Not in a narcissistic kind of way, but we prefer 
what we think, what we want, what we desire, more than we do what anyone else wants. We seek to please ourselves in almost every other way. So think of it like this. I know how I feel. I know how I think. I know what I want about most things. You know, that's my normal. My normal is what I want, what I prefer, and what I think I need. And when other people don't have normalcy in the same way that I do, I don't question myself, I question them. That's just the way it works because of our sinfulness and because of our selfishness. So in loving myself, I make decisions based upon how I think, how I feel, what I think I want, and what I've decided that I need. So the call to love my wife as I love myself demands that I be aware of what she thinks and what she feels and what she needs. Not myself. Aha. That's a little bit different, isn't it? Love demands that I be sensitive to her moods, to her needs, and to the nonverbal communication that gets expressed in the marriage relationship. Have you ever heard loud sounds coming from a room where your, where your husband or your wife is? And you go in and you say, what's wrong? And they say, nothing. Well, is nothing wrong? Absolutely not. Something's not right. And the passive husband, the disengaged husband, will say, okay, well, I'll let you work it out on your own. I'm going back to the couch. <laughs> That's not what we do when we love with a caring love. There's a need for patience and sensitivity to her moods and her feelings and her needs and her desires, her preferences, just like we want and expect for ourselves. A caring love also requires careful, and intentional communication. You know, I've discovered in recent weeks especially is I talk to myself a lot. When I'm typing, when I'm planning, when I'm doing, I talk to myself all the time. And don't forget, I talk to myself a lot when I'm preaching. I talk to myself a lot. So we must work at communicating with our mates, both in what we say and what we hear our wife saying back to us. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's reading the paper or a magazine or deeply engrossed into a TV show? Have you ever had a conversation with a person like that? And not very meaningful, is it? Why? Because they're not really interested. Guys, this is really difficult because our wife needs to express and we need to hear what she is thinking and what she is needing so that we can love her with a caring love, a love that sacrifices my self-imposed desire for quiet and peace. I need to love my wife. I need to listen to what it is she has going on in her life. When we love with a caring love, we show a self-love that desires to give preference and a concern not to do anything that will bring harm to our wives. I guarantee you, if your wife feels ignored, like talking to you is a chore, it's harming her. But instead, we are to nourish and to cherish our wives. The things that we say, the things that we don't say can hurt them. If you don't know how to nourish and cherish your wife, 
in a way that makes her feel cared for, ask her. I guarantee you she has an idea. And we would all do well to know what those ideas are. Number four, this kind of love that has been expressed from Christ to the church is an unbreakable love. Verse 31, quoted from Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The word cleave here means to be glued together. It is to stick together in such a way that you just can't pull it apart. You know, in the vast majority of people that I have counseled with or dealt with that have gone through or are going through divorce, they tell me it feels like I am dying inside. It's supposed to feel that way because you are literally ripping something away from yourself that God has designed to be one. When you are married, you are joined to your spouse and God says you become one. There's no longer me, myself, and I. It is you, we, and us. There's no longer yours and mine. It is ours. There is nothing that is supposed to break our love for one another. Failure to fully leave, excuse me, failure to fully cleave will bring great difficulty. Failure to fully leave our parents means that we are to no longer allow them to control our lives. Mama's boy and daddy's girl make terrible marriage partners. Why? Because you've got a parent that's involved in that relationship. It isn't the three or the four become one. It is the two that become one. You know, it's interesting that these words were written before there were ever any children. God said from the very beginning, you must leave your mother and your father and you must cleave to your mate. That is the idea that God has for our marriage. To cleave means that we enter completely into the marriage relationship. No prenuptial agreements. No divorce insurance. No separation of assets. It is the two becoming one. God loves us with an unbreakable love. Our love for our mate is to be an unbreakable love. The bottom line is that our spouse has never offended us to the degree that we have offended God, yet God still loves us. He will never divorce us. God hates divorce. He only made a provision for divorce because of the hardness of man. But this is to be an unbreakable love. And we look at our last section here, number three, and that is the motive of love. We've seen the mandate. We've seen the model. We look now at the motive of love, verse 32 and 33. This mystery is great. What Paul has just talked about in the sanctification and the glorification and the cleansing, the purity, all that kind of love, all the loves that we have seen, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is... Excuse me, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So this motive of love is very simply to imitate Christ. The, the imitation of Christ is the highest form of love that you and I can ever express, and that is to be the motive that we have in loving one another. The mystery here 
refers to that which was not previously revealed, but has now been made manifest through the life and through the ministry of Jesus Christ. The saints of old did not understand this. The people of Paul's culture did not understand this, that the Messiah would be one with his bride. This truth has now been revealed in Christ, and this is a great mystery being revealed because it has a far-reaching impact on us, and it has far-reaching consequences for our lives. It has a far-reaching impact on his body or his bride. Verse 33 is very simply a summarization of what Paul has said all along the way. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, see to it that you respect your husband. It is our God-given role and our God-given responsibility to follow these things, to die to ourselves, to relinquish our rights and subjection to one another. So marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. Our love and our marriages are to reflect his love and his union to the church. And anything that clearly diminishes this love is to be removed. Our ability to be mutually subjected to one another is dependent upon our being filled with, our being controlled by the Holy Spirit. I believe that when we are dominated by the Holy Spirit, we will willingly confess our sin to our mate. We will repent of that sin and that offense to our mate. And we will grant and request forgiveness so that there can be an increasing experience of oneness between the two that God has joined together. Yeah, I learned this a long, long time ago, is that conflict in marriage simply identifies where the two are not yet one. So wherever there is conflict, it's where you guys are not agreeing on what's the, what's the important, what's the value, what's the decision that needs to be made here. That may never, ever end. Probably won't. But nonetheless, to continue the process of becoming one, to be subjected to one another in the way God has defined, we can't do that apart from our being filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it challenges us. Thank you for how deeply it convicts us. And God, I pray that these words that we've studied over the last two weeks and these that we'll look at in the weeks ahead would never be simple suggestions for us. But they are divine commands. So we pray, Father, that you would help us learn how to live this out in our marriages in a way that pleases you, that reflects the love that you have for your bride. God, may we submit our will to yours. May we allow you to rule our lives in such a way that our marriages reflect your relationship to the church. Thank you for cleansing us when we fail. Thank you for covering us with your grace at every need. And we celebrate that in our marriages, knowing that we can love and forgive as you love and forgive. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I joked with our worship team, most of which are